We are uh, in the book of Romans. We are in chapter 7. We'll be looking at verses 7 through 12. Uh, really important to remind us all that we are, we are recognizing that in this section of Romans 7, uh, that there is an emphasis here of Paul talking to Jewish believers, folks from a Jewish background. He has changed his language to call them uh, brothers, or there could be a translation of family. Uh, And we've acknowledged that as we go through the book of Romans, because what he is doing is trying to unite the Gentile and the Jewish believers, he constantly goes back and forth emphasizing things that are not completely unique to them, but are certainly particular to them. And so Paul both affirms what is universally true in the first couple of chapters of Romans, but he always goes back and forth to speaking directly to his genetic, biological, and religious uh, brothers and sisters of the Jewish faith and his new brothers and sisters in Christ from the Gentile uh, community. And so we are going back and forth. This is important because chapter 7 Uh, read in isolation, uh, can be, well, just about anything you want it to be. And uh, that's not always a good thing uh, when one is doing Scripture. And so uh, know that the emphasis here will be unpacking what it means for us to first understand the implications for the first hearers and readers and why that helps us understand how rich and deep The application of God's word is to us today because it is alive, sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing joint and marrow, rearranging us into a pleasing offering for God himself. And so let's take now time to put the word in front of us, Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 12. Hear now God's word. What then shall we say? Well, that was inauspicious. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet. If the law had not said, thou shalt not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law... Sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me, for sin seized the opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have not left us alone, that you have given us your spirit. Lord, we ask, as we did last week, that we would rest again in your spirit, that these words would be living and active in us, And whatever is said that is not true and in line with the Spirit, may those words quickly be forgotten. In Christ's name, amen. Now again, 
I'm standing in a church, so my comments are not restricted just to the church. Uh, that is to say, to use us as an example is not to say that there aren't lots of other organizations that are inclined in the same way. But I can say that certainly the church is not immune from the habit of blaming beautiful things for our own personal problems. Uh, the church has a tendency to blame women uh, for men's inability to see them as more than uh, mere objects. Uh, how many sermons have we heard where it really is on the women on what they dress and how they look, and it's the poor hapless man who is unable to control his eyes or his thoughts or his own heart, but it's always on the women. Now that isn't to say that there aren't uh, types of clothing or mentalities which seek to take the beauty and use it for some other means. But where that line of honoring that which is beautiful and the attempts to cover up that which is beautiful because for some reason or another, we blame the beautiful thing for our inability to act righteously. The law is the same thing. Paul in this sermon is not raging against the law as something that in and of itself is unbeautiful. And how many times do we accidentally or really as pastors stray into a line where we begin to say that it's the law itself that is the problem, that the beauty of the words that reveal the character and nature of God, a generous God, a loving God, a God who is faithful to us and doesn't commit adultery, a God who does not covet but gives to us generously, a God who does not lie, a God who honors His creation and is true. And all of the ways in which the law reveals the character and nature of God, and yet, because of what sin does to the law, just as sin perverts the beauty of what Adam and Eve had, and what Adam says that this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, and as he appreciates the beauty of Eve, Sin is going to take that and twist what was beautiful. And in the same way, the law which was created beautiful by God because it portrays His character when it meets sin, it is corrupted. And instead of recognizing that that corruption and the interplay of sin with me or with us is not a comment on the original beauty of the law. It's holiness, it's beauty, it's righteousness. It is a powerful example of the ability of sin to pervert even that which is most beautiful and holy and use it as a means to separate us from the love and the life we have in God Himself. The law is beautiful. So this morning, we are going to look at Paul's rhetorical questions. Paul preaches this for us, uh, and we will then uh, wrap up at the end with maybe some encouraging ways to wrestle with our view of the law in the weeks ahead. So Paul asked the question, is the law sin? And with all of his vim and vigor, he says, by no means. 
The fact that the law brings out or shows my distance from God or my idolatry does not change the fact that the law itself is good. But he does say, yet if it wasn't for the law, I would not have known sin. Now, now how do we then hold on to this? All of the context here, going back to chapter 5, talks about the contrast between Adam and Jesus. And so we're back to the garden. This is why Paul uses the illustration of covetousness. What is the sin of Adam and Eve? How is it described in Genesis 3? The serpent says, let me show you some beautiful fruit and the beautiful repercussions of becoming like God. And Eve and Adam in his silence as he stands next to his wife are attracted by the beauty It was pleasing to the eye and beneficial for knowledge. Things I don't have. I don't have that beautiful thing, and I don't have what I contend to be complete equality with God. Therefore, I will take what I don't have. Paul didn't just pick one of the Ten Commandments because this is less controversial than if I use the have an affair one, and the lying one isn't as strong. No, no, no. Paul is tying this back to what one of the original temptations for Adam and Eve and humanity, the reason Adam fell was that he coveted. He coveted what he did not have. He did not have the fruit, and he did not have the equality with God. But he didn't know that until God said to him, that is not for you. And then sin taking the opportunity, rather than seeing that in God's goodness, that rule was for Adam's good. It was for his engagement in free will, his engagement in willfully following God. Didn't create us robots. But he gifted Adam and Eve with the ability to know and choose. And sin engaged then to tempt us, and it killed them. At this point, it'd probably be good to have a definition of sin, and for this I'm going to rob from or quote uh, Dr. N.T. Wright, who supposes and suggests in a passage like this, sin is that which is opposed to God's creation. Now, that doesn't mean to contradict the Westminster Confession of Faith. Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. But that doesn't tell us what sin, that tells us what sinful actions are. But what is sin? And it doesn't really have a locus. It isn't Satan. It isn't a thing. But it is this idea, this force, which we do not yet have a name for. Maybe we don't need one. All we know is that it's defeated in Christ. But sin is anything that is, or that, that thing in creation, which seeks to oppose God and all of His creation, to undo the created world, to kill that which is alive, to mar and rob of its beauty that which was created beautiful and holy and awe-inspiring, to reduce it down to shame and horror and death. That is sin. It takes something as beautiful as the abundant generosity of God and leads it into covetousness. It takes that which is good 
and perverts and twists it. Sin, according to Paul in Romans, kills everything it gets its hand on, its hands on. It kills Paul. It takes the law, which he spent his entire life studying, and did nothing but challenge him in his own failures and weaknesses. Not in his relationship with the divine, but how bad does it kill Paul? Well, it perverts the law so badly that his zeal for God means that he's supposed to run around and kill Christians. What he thought was a love for the law had been so perverted that he actually thinks the answer to loving the law is chasing down all those who claim the name of the Messiah until he comes face to face with the law made flesh. And then the beauty of a God who still has holes in his hands and in his side, the scars of what it meant to defeat sin and death, On our behalf, Paul now understands that sin robbed him, that sin killed him, and that the law, the revelation of the character of God is what sin delights to use to separate us from the love of God. This is the great reality of sin itself, is that it is only going to be killed by God. Even though you and I can, in the abstract, see sin working in another person's life. We see the tragic circumstances. They make one decision and then another. And you're going, oh my stars, you're heading down that road. No, 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 this time it's different. No, you should really stop having lunch with that person. She's not your wife. And you're beginning to have an inappropriate conversation. No, 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 we're just friends. It'll be fine. No, it won't. No, no, we would never head down that road. We would never pervert Scripture. And then you read the great theologians who justify child slavery or the inequality and the brilliance of women. It's got nothing to do with whether or not people are gifted or called to fill different roles in the church. But even just the notions of misreading Scriptures that... Eve was deceived, and therefore women might not be as sharp as men. Which again, given the fall, means that men are pretty horribly calculating, given what Adam did to Eve. But here, Paul says he was deceived. So we have to remember that Paul is perfectly willing, depending on his context, to remind us that we're all fallen human beings, and sometimes we sin under brute force and pure calculating narcissism, as Adam did, or we're simply deceived and think something might be a good idea and maybe the person is telling us the truth. Paul's capable of both. So are we. And sin, sin is so sneaky and so hard for us to kill and it changes and it evolves so rapidly so that the very thing we thought we were doing good turns out to be something that is evil and perverse and hurting those around us. It kills the very commandment that promised life proved to be death for me. That's not the commandment's fault. That's not 
what Paul is saying. The fact that he said sin lies dormant or dies, well, we know that can't be true in a certain way because Paul already said in Romans chapter 1 that we're all consciously trying to ignore the reality that we know in God about God in all creation, which is a sinful act. Paul is speaking very carefully and very clearly here to the Jewish believers who have interacted with the law and regularly used the law as a way to distinguish themselves from the Gentile and to present themselves as better before God. And that was never the law's purpose. And because sin was able to twist the Jewish people's understanding of the law, we might be somewhat wary that even this side of the resurrection and the promise of the Holy Spirit that sin is still twisting the good words of God into ways that we die and kill each other. The notion that this attack of sin on the word of God stopped after Jesus would be naive. The Holy Spirit gives us greater power. The likelihood of turning the lights on, being protected, all of that is true. But sin hasn't stopped trying to divide God's people from Him. Nor has sin given up the notion of twisting the good words of God into a way that kills. The church must guard herself. In the same way that Paul exhorts the Jewish believers to be sober-minded about the power of sin to pervert even that which is most beautiful, the law itself. It is true that the law reveals our need for Christ and the difference between us and a perfect and holy God. But it was true in the Old Testament and it's true in the New Testament that no one was ever saved through the law. The law was never meant to save. How do we know that? Because the prophets condemn Israel for going through religious structures. I hate your feasts and your worship. What do I require? A broken and contrite heart, repentance before God. It was always repentance and faith in God's mercy that saved. God was clear about that in the Old Testament, and it becomes even more marvelous when we know how it's accomplished because Jesus has fulfilled the law on our part. But the law was never meant to be a means of salvation for human beings. It was always meant to be a covenant relationship revealing the character and nature of God. In the context of His grace and mercy. How do I know that? How am I, why am I not just making that up? How do the Ten Commandments start? I know you're in Egypt, and if you start doing these ten things, I will get you out of this jam. Is that how the Ten Commandments start? I know you're in slavery to sin. As soon as you all get your act together and start doing these ten things, I will get you out of Egypt. No. They're already out of Egypt, whined several times. They're at the base of Mount Sinai, where they created a golden calf. And God says this, 
I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery, therefore. I already saved you. I already redeemed you. I already love you. You are my bride. You are beautiful. Here's how we live together. Because this is who I am. I am your one God. I am a God more beautiful than you can imagine, so stop trying to make an image of me. I am faithful. I am like a father to you. I will never lie to you. I will never take from you. I will always be faithful to you. And you will never want for anything. That's the law. That's the law. And sin takes that and makes me compete and pervert and find ways around it. And Paul is wrestling with his believing brothers and sisters in the first century and his believing brothers and sisters in the 21st century about our interaction with the law. A law that was never meant to be a means of getting to God. It was always a revelation of how God got to us. Yes, holiness and righteousness are an expectation. Paul finishes this section. So, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And given that standard, the law tells me that I will never meet it. And that is crushing. And that does cause grief. And it causes me a way to think of any other way out from underneath this as possible. But Paul does not remove the power of the law to reveal the holy and righteous character of God. What he has already done is reinforce that in Christ we are new creations. That our ability to interact and know the beauty of the law is again restored and revived and renewed. That we can see that the law was not meant to kill but to make alive. You and I know that a life of coveting is hardly living. A life hiding our lies is hardly freedom. A life of unfaithfulness is hardly, hardly stable. A life constantly seeking a beauty other than the beauty that is right in front of us is not a life of peace and enjoyment in the moment and a delight. The law in the hands of God reveals the foolishness and the lie of sin. How perverse and unhappy a life enslaved to death really is. I wish more than anything else this side of glory that I was not like a dog returning to my vomit so regularly. But is there any better image than when I'm about to sin again and that image of a dog returning to its pile of sick and eating it as if it were filet mignon. I need the law to tell me that, and it's beautiful that it's loving enough to do so. So what can we do? My encouragement is that we work hard to see the law as beautiful again. My encouragement is for you to read Psalm 119, 
this week. The longest psalm is a song of praise to the law of God. The psalmist has a different view. Not a different view uh, than Paul in the sense of Paul's view in Christ, but certainly the Pharisaical Paul, the Paul who wrestled with the law as a means of self-righteousness, the Paul who had his own heart exposed and chose to follow his broken heart rather than the heart of his father. But the problem isn't the law. The problem is sin and the sin in my own heart. And so my encouragement is grab hold of Psalm 119 and say to Satan, say to sin, say to the enemy, say to death, the law is beautiful because it reveals who my God is. A God who loves me, a God who has given himself for me, and a God who will never let this law kill me or take me away from him. Therefore, the law is again beautiful and holy and good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask again that we would delight in your law. Thank you that it is not a means to save ourselves. Thank you that we do not stand under its sword in a math equation about whether or not we can do enough or do it well. But Lord, in the peace of life given as a gift through you, may we recognize sin when it perverts the truth and the beauty of what your law reveals about you. And Lord, may we be humbled when it reveals the truth of who we are apart from you. All from your, for your glory, in Christ's name, amen.